Now, tech guys, that's pretty much empty, so I don't think it's going to spill. But if it, if it does, fill my account. <laughs> uh, it's lovely to be with you tonight. Uh, isn't it a great privilege to look at the, the Bible together each week? Uh, can, I, can I just say, Nath, it has been a privilege. Uh, who, who's sad that Nath's heading off tonight? Yeah. Uh, thanks, brother. Uh, I want to commend Nath. Uh, I've been in his Bible study this year. Uh, well, you know, he's been in mine. Uh, it, it is just a privilege and a grief, isn't it, to send people out in ministry. Uh, but I, I take it he will bless uh, the places that God sends him. Let, let me pray as we look at his word tonight. Our great God and Father, we, we pray tonight that you would help us to see more of you, that we might see your lordship and that we might find great comfort in what you have done. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yesterday was my six-year wedding anniversary with, with Paige. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the issue is um, neither of us remembered yesterday. Uh, and I said this in the morning, and, and people were kind of asking questions, you know, how, you know so how are things going? We're, we're going well, uh, we're, just, we're just not big on anniversaries, you know. But I did find out, uh, we actually celebrated a couple of weeks before, so, you know, it's all okay. <laughs> uh, but yesterday, I found out from my dad, he posted, you know, a, a thing saying happy anniversary, and we both saw it and we thought, oh, yeah, happy anniversary. Uh, but I remember six years ago, when we got married, Paige was actually, uh, she was sick, she was in pain. And as we got married, we didn't quite know what the future held. We didn't really know what was going to happen. We just knew that there was something wrong. The doctors weren't sure. When, when we actually did get married, she got quite sick uh, pretty soon afterwards. For a number of years, she had chronic pain all over her body. The doctors didn't know what to do. And I remember feeling in the appointments, in the physio, just completely helpless. Like, I can't fix this. It's worse when it's someone else, isn't it? I can't fix this, and hopeless. Like, is this ever going to get better? And by God's grace, she has recovered largely from her pain. It's an extraordinary gift from the Lord. But there were a number of years where we had to face the reality that this might not change. I wonder for you, when was the last time you felt helpless or hopeless? I think probably for a number of us, it might even be tonight. They are deep feelings, aren't they? They're painful, and we feel stuck. What do you do when life throws things at you like that? What do you do when you feel helpless and hopeless? And if you haven't, you will. This is the life we live, isn't it? That God doesn't promise that we won't go through life without suffering. We will. So the question is, how do we cope with that? I want to suggest that the way our culture copes with that is really poor. I don't know if you've noticed, have you ever had this experience that something bad's happened to you and someone comes up and says, it's all right. <laughs> like that makes it better? It's like it's not all right. That's, that's why I'm upset. And you just say, it's going to be okay. Or, or they say, you're stronger than this. You're going to get through this. 
You know, the latest iteration of this is a study that's been done in America by three scientists. What, what they did is they tried to work out, would it help if you made yourself the hero of your life story? And they worked out that they think it probably does. Here's their conclusion. It's up on the screen. If you rewrite your life to have you as the centre, this is what they say. Although you might never save the world on a massive scale, you could save yourself. You can become a hero in the context of your own life, which at the very least will make for a better story. Now, I wonder what you make of that. That if you just reframe things so that you're actually the hero, then you're going to conquer. Problem is, what happens when you don't? It's a lousy kind of hero, isn't it? A lot of pressure and then you feel helpless because actually you're the one that's meant to save you and you can't. I want to say our culture is dreadful at coping with suffering because we don't have categories to deal with these things. But the Bible does. I want to suggest this morning, if you're feeling hopeless or helpless, there is a hope and a great help in the Lord as we see this psalm. It's a beautiful psalm, isn't it? Psalm 121. And this morning, uh, tonight, beg your pardon, (laughs) it's been a long day, you know. Tonight, what we're going to see is an extraordinary help. That if we look to the Lord, that is how we go through life in the midst of suffering. And more than that, actually how we can endure till he takes us home to glory in the new creation. What I want to do is look at Psalm 121 with you and then consider how Jesus transforms how we view it and then think about us. That's where we're heading. But first, a little bit of context. How good's the psalm series been? It's been great to look at the psalms, hasn't it? These psalms are a group of 15 psalms called the Songs of Ascent. You you see it in in the start of the psalm, a song of ascents. There's 15, this is the second one. And as far as we can work out, they were sung by pilgrims who were journeying to Jerusalem. After the exile in Babylon, they returned to the land. But some of them were in distant lands, and as they travelled to Jerusalem, they sang these songs to each other. Have a look at what the psalmist says. Verse 1. I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? Now, we don't exactly know what that means. Whether the hills are danger and the psalmist is is looking and thinking, I need help, or whether they're actually Jerusalem on his journey. But in either case, the question in the psalm is really clear, isn't it? Where do you go for help? That's the psalmist's question. From where is my help from? Have a look at his answer. My help comes from the Lord. Now, in a sense, all we're going to see tonight is that fleshed out, that the Lord is our help, and it is a wonderful comfort. I want to suggest three reasons why the Lord is our help. Firstly, he is Lord. Have a look at verse 2. Again, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, this happens all the time in the Bible. I think we we read something and we just keep going and we kind of forget that that's an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's hard to fit more into a sentence, isn't it? That this is God 
the one who made the universe. That's what the psalmist is saying. Did you notice that Lord here is capitalized? Now, some of you will know that when Lord is capitalized in the Bible, it's a translation of God's personal name for himself. When Moses sees the burning bush and speaks with God in Exodus chapter 3, Moses doesn't know who to call God. And so he says, who, who do I say sent me when they ask me? And God says, tell them, I am. I am sent you. Yahweh means I am. In other words, God is, and that's all there is to it. He, that he is his own reference point. He is massive. And he's the maker of heaven and earth. These are huge truths, and you see them all through the Songs of Ascent. Have a look at Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help, the psalmist writes, is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. 134, verse 3. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. See what they're singing to each other? As they journey to Jerusalem, they're singing that our God made everything. I actually think we've lost a little bit of that in our culture, haven't we, as Christians? That our God made the world. I wonder if we need to sing this more together. That this is who we worship. He holds everything in his hands. He holds you right now in his hands. Because he made you. Now, is that your view of God? Is your view of God that big? That he is the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. See, too often we have far too view of ourselves, a, a too, too big a view of ourselves, don't we? When it comes to God, he's almost an afterthought. What we need to do is reverse that. Think big thoughts of God, like the psalmists do. There's a picture on the screen of a place. Has anyone been here? Ah. This, yeah, excellent. This is my, one of my favourite places in the world. It's called Canangra Walls. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere in the Blue Mountains, and it is spectacular. Part of what makes it lovely, I think, is that there's no one there, and so you're there and, and you're kind of by yourself. It's peaceful. But if you look at the picture, it, it is a glorious view. And as you stand on the cliff, what I find happens... I wonder if you find this, when, when you see something big, you feel small and you kind of feel calm because of it. Does anyone else feel this way? There's a calmness in feeling the right size, <laughs> that we are not the centre of the universe. There is a big universe out there. That's what the psalmist does for us. He says, look to the Lord. Stop looking inwards and look to him. You know how inappropriate it would be to walk along that cliff line with a mirror in front of your face? It's a weird image, isn't it? But just imagine it, and you just see you. <laughs> like, that's not what you're there for, is it? You're not there to see you. You see enough of you all the time. But actually, I take it in suffering, that mirror even becomes bigger sometimes. Like, it's, it's like nothing else in the world exists except what's going on. One of the things the psalmist points us to is to look outside of ourselves. 
to see that our help is from him. In a sense, to lose ourselves in the bigness of the Lord. He does not slumber or sleep, verse 4. He is the maker, but he's also the sustainer of the universe. At every moment, he upholds us, his world. If you think about it, every breath that you breathe is a gift from the Lord. That's what this is saying. He, he is in control of all things. You know, so often I think we feel, when we feel helpless, we cry out for help because things are out of control or things are out of our control. Isn't this a comfort, though, that there is one who is in control? That the world is actually not spinning out of control because there is a God who holds it all together. Even though it feels like we can't fix it. Second, he is near. Have a look again at verse 2. The psalmist says, my help comes from the Lord. I want you to pause on that little word, my. Isn't that an astonishing thing for the psalmist to say? That my help comes from that one. The God who made heaven and earth is my help. That is a very personal thing to say about the Lord, isn't it? There's good reasons why we should be used to that kind of language. We get the same relationship with our God ourselves, don't we? But that is a personal relationship. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Now, the word keeper means something like a guardian. He, he watches over us. Protector, keeper. Have a look again at verse 5. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Isn't that a lovely image? Particularly at the moment. Has anyone felt hot recently? <laughs> when you're in the sun, it's very uncomfortable. It's, it's distressingly uncomfortable sometimes. Beauty of shade is that you feel this respite in the midst of the heat. But where do you have to be to get shade from something? Got to be right there, don't you? You see the picture? The Lord is near. He is right there. He shelters us with his wings, as the psalmist say. He is near. The one who made heaven and earth has not abandoned us. Thirdly, he will keep you. This is the key idea in this psalm. It happens six times the word keep is mentioned. Have a look down with me. Verse 2. Uh, verse 3, sorry. He who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, he who keeps Israel. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Verse 7, he will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord, verse 8, will keep your going out and your coming in. That is a beautiful picture of protection, isn't it? It's hard actually to find a more total picture of protection in the Bible. This is all-encompassing, day and night, sun and moon, all evil. What a thing to say in verse 7. Have a look again. He will keep you from all evil. That is a big thing to say, isn't it? See the psalmist's confidence that in all things, the Lord is God, he is near, and he keeps me. 
But it raises the question, though, what does it actually mean that God will keep you from all evil? Sounds nice until you scratch a little bit and you can start to go, does that mean nothing bad will happen to me? Is that what this psalm is saying? I want to suggest this is not a naive prayer of protection. The psalmist knows suffering. This is the confidence of a pilgrim on his way to Jerusalem who knows his God. Let me explore with you what I think it is saying. If you remember the context of the songs of ascent, they are on a journey, a long journey. The first one is Psalm 120. Flick back, probably on the same page in your Bible, Psalm 120. This is how it begins. In my distress... I called to the Lord. In my distress, I called to the Lord. You see the context? Suffering, distress. Psalm 121 begins similar. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? He needs help. You see, the very context of the psalm suggests suffering, trials. And so what do we do with verse 7? Well, here's what I think it means. That no matter what happened in the day or the night, all evil, all suffering, no matter what comes, the Lord will keep his people. That even in the midst of suffering and the evils of this life, those evils will not overcome God's people. He will keep them through it. So that we can say with the psalmist, the Lord will keep your life. He will keep his people. See, David says something very similar in Psalm 23. Remember the psalm? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what does he say? Yet I will fear no evil. Not that evil's not there. He won't fear evil because God is with him. That's the context of this psalm. In spite of all the trials of life, God will keep his people. So there is a sense in which if God keeps your life, your soul, nothing can really harm you. You're his. There's the three things in the psalm. He is the Lord, he is near, and he will keep you. But here's the thing. That's nice for the psalmist, isn't it? It's wonderful that the psalmist has that confidence. But what about us? What about you tonight? Can we have this kind of confidence in God? That he will keep us on the journey home, that actually we can know that we will make it to heaven. I want to persuade you tonight, you can. Because here's the thing, that at this point in history, the psalmist has some extraordinary promises from God that God would do something in history, that he would bring forgiveness for his people, a new covenant, that he would forgive the sin that separates us from him. They just didn't know exactly how he was going to do it. And so the grounds of this psalmist's confidence is in Yahweh, his character, his promises. Does anyone here paint at all? 
yeah, we've got like two hands, so forgive me if this is wrong. Uh, there's a picture on the screen of underpainting. So when you paint an oil painting, I'm told, that you paint the first couple of layers and you start to, I'm getting a few nods, that's encouraging. You, you start to build a picture of what the picture will be. So you can kind of look at this painting and think, I, I think I know what that's going to be, but it's not finished. I think that's a little bit like the psalmist's hope. That the psalmist knows God will keep his people. He doesn't exactly know what it will look like. But God will do something extraordinary. And what he did is partly what we celebrate at Christmas. That God, the one who made the universe, became a baby. Isn't that extraordinary? That the Lord became an infant in a manger. As Spurgeon says, that the infinite became an infant. <laughs> There's this sense that it blows your brain, doesn't it? That, that that baby in the manger, if you were there, as the song goes, you could have held God in your hands. God the Son. A baby. Talk about the Lord coming near his people became one of us. Now, why did Jesus do that? He did it because he ultimately was on a journey towards Jerusalem as well. And as you read the Gospels, you see him set his face towards Jerusalem and towards his death on a cross. Because it was there that we find out how God keeps his people. That as Jesus died for our sin, what was separating us and God is gone if we trust in him. It's an extraordinary message, isn't it? That not only did God come near, become one of us, but the Son of God died for us. I wonder, how would Jesus have read this psalm in the week leading up to his death? I take it he probably did reflect on it. He was walking to Jerusalem. Think about the night before Jesus died, as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he cries out to his God, his Father, Father, take this cup from me. Yet not my will but yours be done. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? Is He's casting his trust, his help is in the Lord. He's putting his trust completely in Yahweh. And God kept the Lord Jesus, even through death, even through the death that he died in our place, God raised him from the grave three days later, never to die again. Death could not hold him. Do you see how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the help in Psalm 121? And I want to suggest because of what Jesus has done, we can sing Psalm 121 with an extraordinary amount of confidence. So turn with me to Romans chapter 8. The second Bible reading. I'll give you a little bit of time in the other testament of the Bible. I think in a lot of ways, Romans chapter 8 is the New Testament version of Psalm 121. Have a look at verse 28 with me. 
And we know, Paul says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now that is another staggering thing to say, isn't it? That all things that happen to us, actually all things that happen in the universe, God will work for the good of those who love him. Notice he doesn't tell us what that good is. And actually, we may not find out what the good is until we reach glory. But the promise is that no matter what comes, suffering, sickness, death, God will work through even those things for our good. So that he will keep you from evil, I think, is beautifully unpacked in Romans 8. Have a look at verse 37. Paul says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that an assurance? Whatever happens, death, life, future, past... Angels, powers, if your trust is in Christ, notice that is who this promise is for. If your trust is in Christ, nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. Now that is our help in life, isn't it? And in death as we wait for our heavenly home. But I want to illustrate this by telling you about Odysseus, the, the hero of the Odyssey, Greek, Greek myth. Some of you might have heard of the Odyssey. One of my favourite stories. It is actually a, a big journey home. Odysseus, king of Ithaca, kind of wants to go straight home and ends up doing a hundred different things and then finally lands there. One of the things he does is when he's sailing the ocean with his crew, that they find out that there's a bunch of sirens coming up in the water which is really bad news because when you hear the siren song, you jump in the water and then they eat you. <laughs> and the, the Greeks told good stories, didn't they? But Odysseus hatched a plan that he would stuff his men's ears with cotton so they couldn't hear it, and then he would tie himself to the mast of the ship so that as they rowed through, he could tell his men when the sirens had finished singing. And as they did it, They sailed through and continued their long 10-year journey home. Now, here's the point. What keeps Odysseus in the boat? It's actually non-rhetorical. I'd love you to... What, What do you think keeps Odysseus? The rope. Interesting, isn't it? The rope keeps Odysseus in the boat, except the rope is only effective because of the mast. Because in a sense, what keeps Odysseus is the strength of the mast that he has tied himself to. If that breaks, he's gone. It's the same thing with us and the Lord Jesus. Our assurance is not because of us. Our assurance is if we trust in Christ, we have tied ourselves to him. And the ground of confidence is not us, but that he is stronger than I am. 
but he will keep you through all evil. Isn't that a great comfort? I wonder, in our helplessness and hopelessness, what a great comfort this is. That there is a God who knows, who loves us, and who will see us home to our heavenly home with him. As I finish, I want to reflect with you on the words of a song. It's an 1800s hymn from America. It's called Poor Wayfaring Stranger. I'm going to read the lyrics. I'd love to just reflect with you as I close on them. I am a poor wayfaring stranger, just travelling through this world of woe. But there's no sickness, toil or danger in that bright land to which I go. I'm going there to see my father. I'm going there no more to roam. I'm only going, going over Jordan. I'm just going to my home. I know dark clouds will gather round me. I know my way is rough and steep. Yet beauteous fields lay just before me where the redeemed no more shall weep. So I will wear my crown of glory when I get home to that good land. And I will sing redemption's story in concert with the bloodwash band. I'm going there to see my saviour. I'm going there to praise my Lord. I'm going, going over Jordan. I'm only going to my home. Now that is our hope. Whatever comes, sickness, toil, danger, dark clouds will gather. The way will feel rough and steep. But we go to that good land where we will see our Saviour. Isn't that a great hope we have? Hold on to that tonight and through all of life because the Lord Jesus will keep you if you trust in him. Let me pray. Our Father, what great assurance we have in the Lord Jesus. Despite our sin, you paid the price so that we, if we trust in him, will never be separated from your love. Father, we pray that this would dwell deep in our hearts and that whatever comes, we might know that you are God, that you have come very near and that you will keep us to the end. Amen. Thanks, Dan. I love that line, lose ourselves in the bigness of God. And because that, we can be so confident in God, we can be more confident in God than that the sun will rise tomorrow. We can be so confident in his promises, in his protection. Isn't that incredible? We can have a certain hope that despite the chaos and the suffering that we might be going through, that our future is secure because of Jesus' strength. We're going to continue reflecting now on that talk by using our Connect cards. I think I brought it with me. If you pull out the sheet that you received when you first walked in, 